In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Jonathan Rennick about moving from a BEM-style approach to CSS to a more utility-focused approach. We talk about a lot of the problems it solved for us, the surprising workflow benefits, and some best practices on doing it well. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 68. Hey everyone, before we get into the conversation with Jonathan today, I want to quickly chat about what I've been trying with the new podcast format. Uh, So you might have noticed that things have gotten a little bit off schedule between the last episode and this one, and that's because it turns out it's a bit more challenging than I expected to coordinate schedules with a recurring co-host. When the podcast was just interviews, it was easy for me to record like three episodes in the same week and then always have a few episodes in the backlog, which made it really easy to stay a few episodes ahead, and it wasn't really that important when exactly the next episode was recorded. Trying to do the co-host thing is a lot harder because we can't really get ahead on the schedule and still have anything to talk about, especially because David and I are only working on our products part-time on the side. So sometimes two weeks between recording still isn't enough time to make for any really interesting updates. So instead of David and I trying to make the best of that situation and having the show sort of suffer as a result, I'm going to try mixing things up a little bit and having a sort of revolving variety of guests and friends on the show that I can talk to you about different topics related to building software products, as well as mixing in the occasional more traditional interview once in a while again too. So that said, check out this conversation Jonathan and I had about utility first CSS and let me know what you think. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, episode 68. Uh, Today, I am back with Jonathan Renning, who you might remember uh, from being on the show a handful of times where we talked about uh, forms and a bunch of other annoying parts of web development. Uh, How's it going, Jonathan? It's going great, man. Thanks for having me back. Anytime. So it's uh, early Friday morning here, and we're just getting caffeinated. But uh, today, what we wanted to uh, talk about was sort of like uh, this approach to CSS that I've been using for a couple of years and still kind of refining. Uh, But I kind of got Jonathan using uh, this sort of mini framework in its sort of alpha state that I've been sort of porting around from project to project for the last couple of years uh, for a new project that he's been working on. And I thought it'd be really interesting to sort of chat about uh, how that's been going and you know, what some of the hesitations were or uh, some of the interesting benefits that have sort of shown up. So Jonathan, do you mind sort of just introducing, I guess, like what is the project that you're working on? Like, is it coming from like a brand new state? What made you want to try something new on it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's a small little side SaaS business of mine that I have about 50 customers on. And it's been around for probably going on six, seven years now. And I'm in the middle of a redesign on it. And prior to this project, so when I had first done the, you know, first done the first iteration of this project, I was still working at a, a marketing agency. And at that marketing agency, we did a lot of like graphically heavy business sales style websites. And I think the way you build websites like that and the approach that you take with your CSS is actually maybe uh, quite a bit different than what you'd want to do on a more traditional web app. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I did on the first iteration of this particular project was heavily influenced by kind of the way I wrote CSS back then. 
So I'm now six, seven years later doing the redesign and I'm stepping back and saying, well, is there a better way to do this? And I've been following along with the work that you've been doing and seeing the designs that you've been putting out and I've been impressed by it. Um, but it's, you know, the utility class approach is so much different that I was, yeah, obviously somewhat skeptical at first to what that would be like to, you know, in actual practice. So it was helpful getting started like uh, with your classes, kind of that base foundation that you had. And um, as I started, you know, working with it, I think probably my biggest concern initially was I was, I came from this background of working with um, BM style. You're familiar with obviously the BM, yeah. BM style methodology to kind of like CSS design. It's like this idea where you basically almost get rid of the cascading part of CSS and you create these individual reusable components, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the idea of switching to utility classes, and for, for those who aren't familiar with utility classes, they're like an in-between layer between, say, using components versus using just straight-up CSS uh, properties and styles. And what they do is they define things at a lower level. So you'd have C- utility classes for things like positioning and margins and borders and padding and, and, and all this sort of like standard like stuff that you generally define just as CSS properties in, say, a component, um, you, you actually define now in these utility classes. Uh, and what you end up with is markup that has a lot more um, CSS classes in it as opposed to, say, more the BEM style that it's more you have more of a component-based uh, CSS classes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, I think the reason why I was skeptical of it, like, was because it just sounded to me like what I would end up with is markup that has just tons and tons of CSS classes in it. That was sort of like my one like immediate concern. And my other immediate concern was, you know, is this a stray away from using components that, you know, previously I could just create a standardized component and then like duplicate it and implement that on another page and away I would go with no, you know, it would just work out pretty well. Um, and it was I going to be duplicating a whole bunch of these utility classes across my app. So um, I was kind of wondering what that was going to be like. And it's kind of one of those things that until you actually get in and start working with it, it's sort of difficult to, to know whether or not it feels right or not. And I'd say probably the biggest like benefit I noticed right off the bat to working with utility classes was that it made it easier for me to like design a prototype in the browser. So like yeah. I've always been like super envious of people who design in the browser. It's like I'm like how do you do that? Um I've always wanted to do it, but it's just never worked with the process that I've had. And I think I think the reason for that is because I have followed the BEM BEM methodology. So like I love it. I really think that's a really good approach to writing CSS. Um, and I still actually use it for some of my components. But I think the challenge with it is that you need to name your components ahead of time. I, I think that's really where I run stuck. So, and not only the components, you get to name all the you know the classes within that component. Yeah. And and that's good and it's important when you're creating reusable components. But I find it paralyzing when you're trying to just do design. And that's where utility classes have become like really interesting for me just from even just from a workflow perspective. So like instead of trying 
to decide ahead of time which component or which components I'm building for a specific page and what to name them and like agonizing over the naming because naming is like just like so important but like so painful. Uh-huh. Like I just like basically use utility classes to like get some paint on the canvas. And then um, I, I quickly like create a bunch of elements, remove a bunch of elements, move things around, add utility classes and styles as I go. And suddenly I found myself doing way more design in the browser because it's just not painful. It's like really fast. It's really convenient. And then the best part is like once I've nailed down the design and I'm happy with it, like I have a choice. I'm like, okay, is this particular layout or these particular, you know, quote unquote components that I've made, are these something that are going to only ever live on this page or do I foresee myself using some of these over and over throughout the rest of my app or even in one other place? And if that's the case, I can take all that work that I've just done, those classes, and then give them names and call them components and create something that's a little bit more reusable. So I feel like it's maybe I initially started thinking, well, it's either utility classes or components, but it's it's not like that at all. It's more just the order of things. I start with utility classes and then where needed, I move to using components and then the really interesting part is um, modern CSS, like preprocessors like um, Less uh, or SAS with a little bit more work, you can actually inline, as you know, you can inline these utility classes right in your CSS files, which is amazing because now I don't have to go and like translate all those utility classes that I used in my design that I was working on and like you know, translate them back to their original CSS properties. I literally just inline all those utility classes right in my CSS component file, and it all just works. Like high level, that's probably what I've found the most interesting about this approach. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like the idea of doing the utility stuff as like the first step, I think is what makes it the most interesting. Like I know if you look at some of the utility frameworks that exist out there or like the atomic frameworks or, you know, people have different names for these things, but a lot of them are kind of sort of really hardcore in the sense that they kind of espouse the benefits of utilities only or like atomic classes only and that creating some component or something is like bad or evil. You know what I mean? Like you sort of kind of see it as like this black and white thing. Like there's like the BEM sort of approach or like the OOCSS sort of approach, which is sort of similar. Yeah. Or there's the pure utility stuff where you have tiny little classes for every possible property that you could change. And that's like the only way that you can do it. Um, and I think like, that's maybe what puts people off a lot of time, but I think like when you realize that, you know, a really powerful workflow can be give yourself all the building blocks that you need as utilities, build the stuff that you want in the browser until you're sort of happy with it. And then sort of decide after the fact, like, okay, is this sort of combination of classes or whatever, Uh, a pattern that I'm starting to see myself doing a lot. Um, Like a good example of this would be like, uh, if you're trying to take like a pure utility approach uh, where you don't even have components for like buttons and stuff, right? You might have like a bunch of classes on a button tag, like uh, BG success or like BG brand or BG primary or something, right? To set the background to whatever your kind of theme background color is you might have like text light to set it to white text you might have like border 
whatever to give it like a, a border color. Yep. And some padding. Yeah. And some padding and like the font weight, maybe. Um, yeah. If you're getting really hardcore, maybe you even have utilities that specify what it should look like on hover states and stuff like yep. that. Yep. Um, if you find yourself like with seven classes on this button and then you have a button that looks exactly like that in three other places on your site where you've copy and pasted those same seven classes. Well, now it's like pretty easy to see, okay, you know what? It, this would probably be easier for me to maintain if I extract this pattern of classes out into a component, because you can look at it and sort of identify, like if I change the font weight on this button, am I going to want to change the font weight on this button too? And if the answer to that is yes, well then what you have is like actual duplication, not like coincidental duplication. You know what I mean? It's just like totally. when you're looking at like backend code and you write like the same, like five lines of code in two places. You don't want to extract that into like a function or another class or something, unless you can tell yourself, if I change line two here, am I going to want to change line two over here for sure as well? And if the answer is yes, which you can, you can usually just know intuitively based on your understanding of what you're building, then that's actually duplication, right? But if you don't think, if you think one of them might change in a different way than the other one, well, then it's not really duplication. So I think the other thing that's interesting about it is by using that approach, it makes it easy to sort of know which of these classes actually should be extracted into the component and which ones should be left on that individual element. So like something I see not so much anymore. Well, I don't know, maybe some of the frameworks still do it, but I used to see on projects that I worked on at different companies I worked for, sometimes people would have like a button component class that had like a margin bottom on it because they never wanted anything butted up to the bottom of the button say, right? But yep. then there'd be all these places where maybe I want to use that button in a nav bar now. And now because of that margin bottom that's baked into that button class, now it's making the nav bar taller. So we got to figure out some way to undo that style on the button <laughs> component in that one place, which usually meant like, you know, dot account settings page, dot nav bar, dot button margin zero, you know, that sort of yeah. thing, which I think is like the biggest CSS anti-pattern ever. Like if you ever find yourself having to like go yeah. out of your way to undo styles on classes that you're using, that's bad. You should be yeah. trying to only add new styles. Like anytime you have to try and take away styles from something, to me, that means you should go to that class and remove that style entirely. And everywhere that you were depending on that thing that was built into that component, you should now add that as a utility to every one of those instances. You know what I mean? 100%. So with the BEM stuff, did you have any other like issues with it? Like the way I'm kind of thinking about it is I think the BEM stuff is like really good in a lot of ways, like especially the the primary idea, which is keeping like the specificity flat everywhere. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. That I think it's like a really important and powerful idea and like I totally on board with that. But I think like you, I agree that the biggest problems I ran into trying to use that approach was always the fact that I had to come up with a name for yeah. this thing. And a lot yeah. of the time you'd get the name wrong or you'd be lazy with the name. Or you'd come up with a name that like you knew wasn't necessarily going to be quite right. Like I think what people do a lot with the BEM stuff is they name stuff based on the content uh, yeah. that they're using it for. So like you might have like a staff bio BEM component or something. Uh, because that's the first component that you're building that is sort of a card with an image on the top and a little title and then a little description but yeah. then you go to build something else on the site which is maybe like 
a preview of a blog post and you realize that it's like, oh, you know what? I actually want like both of these to look the same. Like they're the same visual component. They have like both have an image and then some text and they're in like a card. And now all of a sudden the fact that you named that BEM component like staff bio <laughs> makes no sense because this other thing is just like a card preview of a blog post. It's not a staff bio. So you have to ask yourself, do I go back and figure out a new name for that? Or what I see people do more often is they'll make a new class called like blog post preview and then they'll use like SAS extends or less extends or something to like have that extend the other class. So now you have basically two components that are exactly the same, but with different names because you're being forced to name things first, which means you're coming up with these names that are based on the content because that's like the most intuitive thing to think of. And we've all had this sort of hammered into our head that everything is supposed to be quote unquote semantic, right? And that you're not supposed to like have visual sort of information uh, baked into your class names. Is that something that like you ever ran into? Yeah, this very much comes back to kind of like my history a little bit as a front end developer. Like I I came from a from a place where we did marketing, you know, salesy style websites. And in those situations, um, more often than not, like each page, each section was unique and there wasn't a lot of reuse. So the BEM, BEM style worked out really, really well in those situations. Cause you know, to be perfectly honest, we didn't have a lot of reuse and for the, you know, the odd time that there was then, you know, a little bit of duplication was fine. But I really think that's different when you're dealing with a web app, um, because you don't have a lot of that custom marketing sales sort of design in there. Um, it's more about, you know, forms and, and text and, and just kind of like you, you do have a much more standard set of things. And that's why I think the BEM approach starts to break apart a little bit. Um, so for me, you know, I can totally relate to this, you know, the, this issue where you have what we ran into a lot basically is, the idea with BEM is you start with your default set and then you create modifiers for different situations. And what we ran into is we would have horrible, horrible modifiers. Um, so you'd have a component and then you'd have a modifier called like no padding, which just felt terrible. Or you'd have a modifier for a specific page. So an actual BEM component would have a modifier within it for a specific page. And we ran into that stuff all the time because I think the reason why, real simply, is because there was no easy way to tweak that component for that one situation that it was different. So you you had to build it all up, and then when you modify it, it's like, well, the way we modify components is by using these modifiers, so i got to pass that through. And this is what's so great about the utility classes, is because... I think the more I work with it, like the more I realize that there are certain things that tend to stay like static within a component that don't change from section to section, uh-huh. but there are certain things that change all the time. And like one of those things is margin. Like margin is always getting tweaked and it, because it really comes down to where that, that component is being placed. If I put a button at the end of a form, that button's going to have a different margin or spacing around it than maybe it would if it's in some sort of dropdown or if it's in some sort of uh, nav or, or whatever. So you kind of learn, I think, after a while, which of the sections of your component get you know changed more often. And But instead of like now trying to like make those into modifiers on those components, you, you just don't even bother. You just leave no. them out entirely 
and what's awesome is you just say, okay, I want a button here, and then you add your utility classes for the margin afterwards. And that has just been like that has been so awesome because I don't have to now open a CSS class to like create a modifier, add some you know extra style to this component. I literally just type button, margin, and you know, margin top, margin bottom, whatever I want, and it's done. And like that from even just from a development workflow perspective is so much faster because I don't have to open I don't have to open that that CSS file. I don't have to oh crap, you know, my build is, you know, processes are running. Okay, jump to the command line, uh, npm run, uh, uh, whatever, however I'm, you know, using gulp or whatever it is that I'm, I don't have to start any of that up. It's just, I can just literally add another class and now I have that solved. Um, and that's been awesome. And I, I really had that on the, you know, this previous design. I ran into this problem all the time because I use these components, but like every single time I use that component in a slightly different way, it was like, oh, I got this pain now uh, and what to do. And like the purist in me is like, oh, I can't use an inline style here because that's like horrible. So it's like, I don't use an inline style, but then like I go through all the pain of like adding this one-off modifier for the component and and, and like adding that to the CSS file and then rebuilding that asset. And it's like somehow like that makes me feel better, but it's actually terrible. (laughs) Yeah. I think the margin utilities are a really good sort of like gateway drug to the whole approach. Because totally. I think they're the easiest ones to sort of see the benefit from uh, because of exactly what you're saying, right? Like, I think um, the fact that most of the time, how you define the margin around a component is entirely based on where you use that and what else is surrounding it. Yeah. To me, that's like a death sentence for um, any other approach. Because if the margin on the right side of a button totally depends on what you're putting next to that button. Well, the only place that the surrounding content is defined is in the markup, right? Like yeah. if you have a button and then a button next to it, that's defined in the markup. That's where that relationship exists. So the only place that it makes sense to define the margin between them is where you put them next to each other because that's where the context exists, right? Otherwise you have to do exactly what you're saying, which is like create some funky modifier or some nested selector thing that's like targeting it based on this specific page or, or some other kind of crazy thing like that, that just ends up not being, you know, maintainable at all. Or, I mean, the other thing that I think is a big benefit to uh, the utility stuff is that, so stepping back a little bit, I think one of the uh, hesitations that people sometimes have, like when they first hear about this approach is you sort of worry that you have too much flexibility. Like I can just combine any of these classes. I have millions of these utilities. All my buttons might look totally different. Uh, There's not going to be any consistency in the design. You know what I mean? Because you just like have too much freedom. I think what I've found in practice and what I think people I've talked to that have taken this approach tend to find is the total opposite effect which is that you actually get more consistency because you're forced to choose from a set of predefined utilities. So like if you were using like a BEM style approach and you were trying to add a modifier to give something some bottom margin because of this specific place that it's used, when you're defining that bottom margin in the BEM class, there's absolutely nothing constraining what value you can put there. I could put 10 pixels. I could put 11 pixels. I could put 12 pixels. I could put 13 pixels. I could do it in RAM. I could do it in M. You, know, <laughs> you can do whatever you want. But if you're 
using like a margin utility class, like mine are named like MB dash and then like some number, which represents some some slot in a scale of potential spacers that I have. So for me, like MB dash four is a really common one, which I have defined as one rem. So uh, by using like that utility instead, I only have like three sort of possible choices there. You know what I mean? There's like MB3, MB4, or MB5 usually. Like if I pick MB4, well, MB5 must have been a little bit too much and MB3 must have been a little bit too small. Yeah. Um, if that's like, if I wanted one pixel extra, if I was using a BAM approach, I could put in that extra pixel. You know what I mean? No problem. And I probably would. But because like that would force me to define another utility and I wouldn't really want to have like a MB 4.5 or something that forces me to just like stick with that size. And over time, you sort of see like when you zoom out and look at this design, you can kind of see these sizes and this consistency sort of like appearing. You know what I mean? Because you were forced to choose from like a bucket of predefined sizes for things. And the same effect happens with colors, right? So really useful uh, utility classes that I have that I actually haven't really seen them defined this way in any other sort of framework. Uh, but me and you kind of hacked on them and really tried to perfect them, I think, is like we have for text colors, we have like text dark, which is like your darkest text color, like your you know quote unquote black even though you would never really use black it's usually some really dark dark blue gray or dark gray or something right yeah and yeah. then we sort of have modifiers for that right so there's like text dark there's like text dark soft which is like a slightly lower contrast version text dark softer and text dark softest so we have like four possible dark text colors and then we have the same thing for light text so text light text light soft text light softer text light softest so because again, you have those like predefined options to choose from, you're never going to end up with like, I don't know if you've ever, I think there's tools for this actually, where you can sort of like audit the number of yes. values that you have yes. in like your CSS file. Yes. Um, and I remember doing that on some projects I've worked on in the past and finding like, wow, we have like 21 different gray text colors on this site. Like that doesn't sound ideal. But how easy that that happens so easily when you're writing like components that you can just write straight up CSS in because with thing, tools like Less and Sass, you have these color modifiers. You're like, oh, that doesn't look 100% right. So I'm just going to do like a color modifier to make it a little bit darker, a little yeah, bit like... Yeah, darken like, it by 5% or that's whatever. Right. Yes, which seems like a good thing. It's like, oh, well, this is good design. I'm making it look better. But it's like, it's actually like you're shooting yourself in the foot because now you, you've literally just introduced a new color to your overall color palette. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. And we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer 
and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. So here's a question for you. Um, what components would you have built in the past on this project that you are finding yourself not building now? Like, it just has not seemed important to extract into a component. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think probably some some smaller little navigation pieces. So I'll, like, I'll have certain little sub navs. So on one particular page in this application, uh, it's a navigation style and it may end up getting reused, but it's a little nav. It's a three button navigation that goes on the right hand side of a search bar, kind of like all in line horizontally. Um, and I basically put it, it's three icons with an active state. Um, and I was able to create that with minimal utility classes. And sort of when I made it, um, um, I couldn't think of another place in the app that I was going to do that style. So that's like one example. It's like I was totally happy just creating that little sub nav and leaving it there. Um, now, if I end up obviously using that similar style elsewhere, maybe I'll duplicate it. But it just didn't feel like it was even... Even what it took to make it didn't feel like necessary to to create the component, and and because it wasn't I buying like, you anything, right? Like what it, what exactly. is the benefit at all of creating the component if you only ever if you only have that combination of classes appearing once? Like even if you can look at it and say like, yeah, this is something I could give a name to. Like this looks like a component. Mm-hmm. If it's only ever if you only ever write the markup for it once in the whole project, yes, then it's easier to just leave the utilities there and be able to modify them in the Dom than it is like yeah. to extract them and then have to go into your CSS to edit it. If you ever want to change it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and I find like sometimes with those sort of pieces, it's annoying because your, your project depending on the situation might have like, I, I hate the word sub nav even because it's like sub in that it's like not the main navigation, but like yeah. web apps have tons of different types of navigation uh-huh. that are not the main navigation. So you end up with like sub nav one, sub nav tab, sub nav box, sub nav straight text. Like it's all these like different <laughs> styles. And it's just, I don't know. I just it, like, again, you get back to that naming problem. Again, I'm not advocating not creating components. I'm just saying for that particular situation, it didn't really make sense. Um, and I was totally okay with that. Yeah. I, th- I think the nav bar is a good example. That was the one I was going to give too. So like on Kitetail, the project that I'm working on, I have a nav bar at the top of the screen that has like the little logo on the left. There's a centered section in the middle that has like my three um, navigation items. Then there's like a little profile icon over on the right. And the beauty of it is that I just define all that with utilities, right? So there's a couple flexbox utilities on there to get the layout looking right. Some font size utilities, that sort of thing. But that nav bar is only ever defined in like my main layout file for like the back end of the app. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like I'm trying to make new nav bars in different places with different content totally. all the time. So there's, there's no reason, there's no motivation for me to 
create a component. Like it just never occurs to me like, oh, I should go and edit my CSS because I think like the other beauty of this approach, and I'd be interested to find out like if you're noticing this too, is that you basically very, very, very rare that you have to open up a CSS file and change oh, one. I love it. I love it. Yes, I've been already noticing that and it's amazing. Like you don't realize like what that does for your workflow and to slow you down. It's amazing. Yeah, because you don't have to wait for anything to compile. You're not switching between like files or anything. Like again, it's like back to that sort of like designing in the browser thing, right? It feels yeah. like like HTML becomes like a Photoshop for you or something now. Like you can just yes. kind of sketch in the HTML, which is like a really powerful feeling. For sure. So I was going to give another example of another place that I, I would have definitely used a component previously. So in this particular web app, um, there's this idea of like, a, it's like a family page. So think of it like a, almost like a contact page. So if you would have like a, a contact um, app where you'd mm -hmm. go to a specific person, it would show like their, their name, their address and their phone numbers and different things like that. Right. So in this particular app, like that's actually like a highly complex page because it's got like this card view that has all the, the contact information. It's got like nice little icons beside it to kind of like give it some visual interest. It's got a, a photo. Um, it's got a, a download button to like download like a V card and all these sort of different things. So it's, it's a very important page in this app and there's a lot going on, a lot of styles, but to literally, there will never ever be this page anywhere else in the app or even these components, to be honest. Um, so to, to make that a component, like all I'm doing is, is exactly kind of what you're saying with the layout. Like I'm just creating a file at that point, a CSS file just for the sake of it. And, and I'm really not gaining anything. Um, now again, if I ever did want to reuse a piece of it, then I would have no, no qualms with creating a component for it, but it's just so nice not having to do that. Like I can just build and not have to go through that process of, and it's always so annoying. You got to create a file and then you got to update your, you know, the, the, the app file to include that file and then make sure yeah, yeah. Your, your build process is running. I don't know. It's just, it sounds so like trivial and minor, but it's not when you like are just looking to get some work done. And, and I think it's like you would go through the pain if like you saw obvious benefits because you know, you, you know, it's worth it. But when you run into situations where it's, you know, you just literally see no benefit, all you're doing is moving those styles elsewhere, then I just think it's pointless. So, and that's really what I found works nice. That's what I think is interesting, right? Like you can be working on building something out in the DOM, like just in your markup by kind of combining these sort of additive utilities. And because of the fact that you never feel any pain from it, you just, it never occurs to you to move it to a CSS file. So yeah. something that I think is, is interesting to talk about here is I think like in general, the sort of web development community has started to accept that uh, we had things wrong probably back in the day. But do you remember like the CSS Zen garden thing? Uh, like the mm -hmm. whole idea of basically being able to have some markup and you could switch to um, many different style sheets and redesign the whole <sighs> site just by using a different, a different style sheet. And I, I think that leads to this idea that, you know, people talk about like unsemantic classes and stuff. And, yeah. you know, there's, it's not as prevalent as it used to be, but people used to say things like, you know, having like a, a class called row and then a class called call SM six, like some standard bootstrap stuff. Uh, people would say this was bad and that you were kind of, you know, you were using unsemantic uh, classes and 
Instead, you should be creating some class specific to your app where you like mix in those columns, you know, that sort of thing. And I, yeah. I think you do still see like this idea getting sort of uh, pushed around as like a, a positive thing. But obviously the utility focused approach is very counter to this in a lot of ways, right? I don't think it's so hardcore as to say like, well, some frameworks do this. I have tried to avoid it, but like, I don't have like a BG red class or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Something that's like really super visually specific. I have stuff that's very visual, you know, like text light or text dark, but I try to be careful to name things in a way that I have a little bit of flexibility to change the implementation of that without the name seeming totally wrong now in a lot of yeah. the cases, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I guess my question is, how has it played out for you in general to have markup loaded with um, styles that are like very specific to how you're trying to make the page look like adding classes specifically to change how the page looks versus how you might've done it before where you're giving something a class that's named after like the content that you're styling. Has that created issues for you? You know, has it not been a concern or just how has that played out? Yeah. Like honestly, it hasn't, it hasn't been a concern yet. So I'm, I'm reaching for like maybe a gotcha that I've run into. Um, I think there's maybe some more like practical issues that you run into with this approach that I think I haven't felt as much with you know, the previous approaches that I've taken to writing CSS. And I think the, it's the pieces that are difficult to define as a class. And it's easier to define like in your actual CSS so things like active states, things like hover states, um, pieces like that, um, that are, those are the ones that I've sort of like bumped into um, issues with this approach. And I think part of that is because I'm new to it still and I'll like find ways. So like I'm like struggling, like, well, how do I ever, how do I ever define a hover state on something? Um, how would you do that? There's no hover state. There's no style hover, you know, or class hover in in html so so as you know we've you know been looking at for creative ways to try to solve this and i think i think there actually are like for instance i have in one situation like a bunch of my background colors i literally have the background color so dot bg dash uh dark or whatever but then i'll also have like a dot uh hover dash bg dash dark and that's literally the same color the same background color but the only difference is um, it only applies it within that actual utility class. It only applies it on a hover state for that element. Yeah. So I've even sort of like started to find workarounds for that. But yeah, like other than that, like no major issues. Like I think what people maybe would think when they first hear about utility classes is that it's like an alternative way of writing um, inline styles, which everyone, you know, everyone's always like, oh, inline styles are so bad, you know, for, and there's lots of good reasons why, um, inline styles are bad. Um, but I think there's like a big difference between utility classes and inline styles. A lot of this, you know, kind of what you've already touched on. Um, I don't see utility classes as an alternative to inline styles. I see alter, I see utility classes as an alternative to like straight up components only. 
uh, because there's so much more to the utility classes than just defining some specific styles. Now, you will have certain utility classes that are just like one-off styles, like some of the position or the display ones, like block like just or a single line. property, you mean? It, exactly. Like you will have those and those are extremely useful. So those do exist and those feel a little bit more like they're a replacement to inline style. But I think like more than that, and this is kind of what you were talking about earlier, like I think utility classes can actually help define much of your overall visual language. And you don't necessarily think of it because you think your visual language, like, oh, it's like the way, you know, things are laid out and the nav bar, you know, the, the header bar, you know, the background color or different things like that. But visual language is much more than the layout of your app. It's also, you know, it's all the colors, it's the typography, you know, both in the actual the type of font that you use and the, the, the font weights and the font sizes. It's the spacing, like what what's the spacing happening all over the place? Uh, it's the shadows, the box shadows, the background colors, it's all this sort of stuff. So the utility classes, when you start consuming them, like you're you're thinking less about that overall design because you have that sort of that base in place. And you're thinking more about the specific thing that you're trying to create. So like an example would be like, I'm creating a border on this particular thing. I know I want a border because I want to create some sort of separation between two pieces of content. But like if I was doing that in a component, it's like, okay, border with one uh, color this and like colors are always a nightmare. And then, um, and you have total free reign too. Total, right? exactly. Whereas like now with these utility classes, like I know I want a border on the bottom, like border dash B that's the utility class that we use. And it's like, and that now there's a border and I do have a bit of flexibility. I can tweak the colors kind of as per that standard color palette that we have defined, but I'm very much restricted. And, and, and I feel like by following and using these utility classes, I'm sort of living by this overall design, this overall visual language that's been defined. And it's way less about, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, font color or color equals red in this particular inline style. Like, it's not like that at all. Yeah, you're like constraining all your choices to the point where um, as long, like you can pick out of your toolbox whatever you find that gives you the result that you're looking for but because you've only filled that toolbox with stuff that you know is going to like look right with your overall design like that concern is just kind of like removed from your head like yeah i want to give this a bottom yeah. border i have three different dark border colors i'm just going to pick the one that looks best here out of those three and not worry that oh i've introduced a new border color or anything like that because like that doesn't happen now because um, yeah. you've constrained your your choices and the reality is most often you're just choosing your default border right like that's where i always sort of start i'm like i yeah. want a border okay throw a border on it's like okay and then you can tweak from there so more often than not you don't even end up with kind of like your modified versions you quite often end up with just the version the default one uh-huh so um one other topic that i think is interesting to get into related to the stuff that we haven't touched on at all is how this plays with like responsive design mm -hmm. so I think something that I've ran into in the past when using frameworks that provide some utilities. So like a good example of that is bootstrap, um, bootstrap four in particular has a lot more of this stuff, but even bootstrap three had stuff for like text left or text center or text, right. Or, um, yep. a couple font size helpers and stuff like that. A lot of time I run into situations where, I need something to look different on different screens and I've designed it with utilities. And now because of the fact that, oh, this needs to be a different font size at this screen size, all of a sudden 
that sort of pushes you to create a component a lot of the mm-hmm. time or, or at least that's what would happen to me with like bootstrap it'd be kind of annoying it's like oh like the actual the the text alignment stuff is actually like a common example of that like sometimes you might have something set up like you know like the classic like sort of media object where you have like an image on the left and then like some content on the right sort of thing yeah yep. so a I, I, I concrete example of this actually would be um on my kitetail.co just main landing page at the very bottom i have this section that says like who are you with a picture of me that sort of like just gives a brief intro about myself um so people can look at this site and be like oh adam's working on this i know who adam is cool so that's like a media object at the bottom but when i go down to like a small screen where i stack that stuff i want like that who are you label to be centered with the image centered above that yep Yep. So I need to like responsively change the text alignment. So if you're using like bootstrap or something and you're, you're kind of on the component train or, or even if you're trying to do it with utilities and then you realize, Oh, because I need it to look different at different screen sizes, I guess I need to make a component for this. Now you're back to that really horrible game of what the hell do I name this thing when it only gets used once. So I don't Mm -hmm. really know like, how do I come up with a general name? This is a problem I've always had anyways. When I try to extract components, I'm, I try to be really careful to not make them specific to that content yep. uh, because I think that's a trap that you can fall into. So sometimes it's paralyzing because it's even harder to name something in a content agnostic way than it is to name it based on the content. So how have, I mean, obviously like the, the CSS framework, whatever you want to call it that me and you have been playing with, uh, has some solutions for this uh, built mm-hmm. in, but maybe you can kind of talk about that a little bit and like h- how uh, we've been solving that and how it's been playing out for you. Yeah. So um, just for people listening, like the way we solve that or the, one of the ways we solve this is every single um, utility class, or at least most of them have the ability to define a screen size so sort of it's very similar to the way that bootstrap bootstrap works i think bootstrap has and stuff yeah yeah it, it, with columns exactly but what i'm what i'm realizing is that at first i thought well maybe i'll only need these responsive helpers so it's a responsive modifier so maybe you would have um like the classic one is the columns obviously medium large extra large small right and and that's the way you, you modify your columns for different screen sizes um, what I'm realizing though, is that I actually want those responsive helpers on basically every single utility class I have, because uh-huh. you might think, well, you know, font size, well, that's not going to change, or maybe a shadow is not going to change, you know, between small and medium and large. But what I found that happens in certain situations is that the way that you lay out s- some piece of content from say a single column, s- small phone sort of size screen, the way you lay out that call that component uh, or that content from that size to say a medium or a large could be like dramatically different where that maybe in one situation uh, it has a, the title has no background color on it, but then out of the small size it does. I, that actually happens more often. Like you go down to like a, a small screen size and you actually like inverse the title color and you put a background. And so you have like a white um, title text and like a background color on it. So you need these responsive modifiers for basically all of the utility classes, I think, 
um, in order to kind of have the freedom to do whatever you need to do. And that like with that in place, you have basically the ability to do almost everything you need to do from a responsive um, layout design perspective. The one piece that I've been running into challenge, you know, some issues with, and it's a, the same old CSS issue, and you've, you talked about it earlier, it's when you need to reset things. This is the piece that's challenging. So I'm running into a problem right now where I have a header that I want to have a certain layout. Like I want um, these items in a header. So by default, imagine this this web app, and on the top left it has the username and their, their profile photo, and then the top right it has like a search bar for the app. So that's the way it works at any like larger screen size. But when I like drop it down to a small screen size, I want that search bar to be on top of the username and pro- profile photo. Yeah. Um, but in the markdown, it's it's on it's it's underneath it, right? It's it comes later. And with flex, flexbox, this is no big deal because you can use flex columns and flex direction, and, and you can modify that stuff to like go in whatever order you want, which is great. But the challenge is that if that's at the smallest size and that flex direction component, um, that utility class is defined at the smallest size. Well, now when I go to a larger size, I actually need to undo because a lot of, and this is pretty normal. Maybe I should explain this for a second as well. A lot of the way uh, CSS frameworks work is they do this mobile first approach with the, the responsive utility classes where like you start with your no so whatever style you put first is like the default and that's like the the mobile first style and then you you have small medium large and they they, whenever you add one of those like they build on what exists there already so it's not like it's an and or like it's not like it that style's turned off when you get to a larger size you're adding styles every time you you get the screen gets larger so if you run into situations where your responsive design requires that a previous style actually get omitted, that's the one little gotcha that I'm, I'm running into yeah. right now. Um, and I don't really know how to solve that one quite yet. Like, I mean, it's definitely doable, right? Like a common example of that, like a really simple example is margins. A lot of time when, if you have stuff that's like laid out next to each other on bigger screens, but it stacks on smaller screens, you yeah. want to stick like a margin bottom on them on the smaller screens so that you get a little space between them. But on the bigger screen, you don't want that space at the bottom of each one because maybe you just want to use the padding on the container to define it, right? So that's right. when I'll use like um, maybe I have like an MB4 on all of them by default to give it like a margin bottom of like my fourth spacer size. And then I'll have like an MD MB0 on the other ones to sort of – so you're right. Like you have to defeat that style somehow, right? Yeah. I think the trickier – not the tr- it's not trickier, but sometimes it's annoying to define these styles is when you want to switch something back to like auto or like the browser default or whatever because totally. it seems like janky to like make a utility to make something look like the browser would already do by default. <laughs> yeah. But I think that would be one way to do it. So like if you have something yeah. like your um, – your flex direction or like your, I don't know what the other flex properties are, the ones that like set the positioning yeah, you, of them. Yeah. You, you need to define utilities for the default state so that you can flip back to those. I think that that's the right. other hack that I yeah. think is actually more powerful than people realize and a lot simpler a lot of time <laughs> is to honestly just duplicate the entire markup and wrap each one in a, a display responsive helper that says like okay i have two copies of the search bar in my header um on mobile screens 
make this one visible and the other one hidden. And on every other screen, make the mobile one invisible and the other one displayed. Um, oh, that, that's you're a, gonna you're gonna upset some people with that idea. <laughs> I don't I don't care. To me, no, honestly, that it. ends up being I like, love it. It ends up being so much more practical than trying yes. to like be really efficient with stuff a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, I don't do that a lot, but that's like a good escape valve. You know what I mean? Like a last totally. resort, like you can always do that. Um, yeah. I think like uh, a, an example for me of when I need to do like this responsive tweaking stuff is uh, a perfect example is a kite tail checkout page on a big enough screen. It's like a card view, right? So it's like a rounded bordered card in the middle of the screen. that looks like a checkout form yep. with like a box yep. shadow and stuff, but on mm-hmm. mobile, I don't want like a card because like the phone is already like the size of the entire card. So exactly. on mobile, I need the border radius to go back to zero so that the corners are square. I need the margin and padding on the, on the container of the page to go away because I want it to stretch to all corners. I need the box shadow to go away. And probably the outside borders as well. Yeah. I actually don't have any outside borders. Oh. I just use the box shadow to kind of get that yep. effect. But yep. yeah, you My would card. have to do that in those cases too. Yep. Yep. So in those cases, like I just, I only define the border radius on, uh, let me look right now. It looks like I only define them on medium screens and up and the syntax that we're actually using for the responsive stuff, I think is like kind of interesting. I love it. There's a, something that a lot of people don't know with CSS that I didn't even know until like last year was that you can use non normal symbols in CSS classes, as long as you escape them in your CSS. So you might be used to thinking that you can only use like letters, dashes, underscores, and numbers in your CSS class names, but you can actually use like colons or at symbols or anything else. As long as you stick a backslash in front of it in the CSS file, in the HTML file, you don't need to escape it. So what we've been doing Uh, for the responsive utilities, which I think is like a nice convention that makes them stand out a lot is unlike bootstrap where they do like call dash SM dash six, and they put like the screen size in the middle of the class, we prefix everything with the class into colon. So if I have, um, say I want my text to be centered on mobile, I'll just have a class called text dash center. And that's like by default, it should be text center. And since we're doing like a mobile first, then the non-prefix version is what applies at the smallest screen size. And then on medium screens, if I want that to be text align left, then I do MD colon text dash left. So like the MD colon is like a prefix uh, that just sort of looks like a label at the beginning that's saying like on medium screen sizes, apply this class. So it almost just looks like a modifier that's stuck in front of an existing class name. Like the actual class name doesn't look like it changes. It's still just text left. It's not text MD left, but it just looks like you're sort of like almost like wrapping it in like parentheses or something almost, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of cool. I love it. Yeah. It's worked out really nice. And I think that's exactly the, the nice piece about it. It doesn't look like this is the, you know, small margin left three class. It's like, no, this is a margin left that I want to apply that the small size and that simple little colon, I think, especially because like you don't generally see those in classes um, because they're not easy to use. Uh, it, it even like visually stands out more. And I think generally if you're working with components, you wouldn't want to be using colons because it would just be annoying to have to escape them yeah. when you're writing the components. But because you define your utility classes once, it's like, we'll totally do that because it makes writing these things, the actual CSS classes in the markup, it makes it awesome. 
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank CodeShip for sponsoring this week's episode of Full Stack Radio. CodeShip is a fully customizable continuous integration service designed to make it super easy to run your tests in the cloud and automate your deployments whenever your build succeeds. And so I actually use CodeShip to run my test suite on quite a few of my projects, including Kitetail and Nitpick CI. And what I love about it most is just how easy it is to set up. Something else I really like about CodeShip is a feature called Parallel Test Pipelines. So what this lets you do is split your test suite into multiple groups and then run all of them at the same time in parallel. So if you set up three parallel test pipelines, for example, your whole test suite could run up to three times as fast because all that code is running at the same time. CodeShip also makes it really easy to integrate with your deployment workflow of choice. So you can deploy new code to production automatically whenever your tests pass on CodeShip and avoid deploying broken code if your test suite is failed. They have pre-built integrations for a lot of common platforms like Heroku or Google App Engine and Engine Yard, uh, but it's also really easy to set up custom deployment scripts too. So I use Envoyer.io, for example, to deploy my projects, and Envoyer gives me a unique URL that I can ping anytime I want to deploy my code. So with CodeShip, all I have to do is add a one-line custom deployment script that pings my Envoyer URL, and then anytime I push new code to GitHub and the tests pass, CodeShip will run that little script, triggering a new deployment with Envoyer. So CodeShip offers a free plan that you can use even for private projects that gives you 100 builds per month. And if you need unlimited builds, their paid plans start at just $49 a month, which is really affordable compared to a lot of the other continuous integration services. CodeShip is also completely free for open source projects. So if you have an open source application or package that you maintain, you've got nothing to lose by throwing CodeShip on there to monitor your builds and keep you informed if something breaks. If you'd like to learn more about CodeShip, head over to CodeShip.com to get started. And Again, I've been using CodeShip on my own projects for several years now and can't recommend them enough. Uh, so definitely check them out. And thanks a lot to CodeShip for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. Back to the show. Okay, two quick things that I want to finish up with and then we'll we'll kind of wrap this one up. Yeah. Um, the, first one, the first one is that there are still situations where I create components um, instead of using utilities, even if it's something that I only use once. Uh, and the reason for that is, like you were mentioning, some things are just easier to do by writing it in CSS than it is in the DOM, right? So uh, a classic example for me is when there is interaction between elements in like a set of markup that they kind of play off of each other. So I've been working on this thing for Kitetail that's like this fancy little drop down for switching between a published and unpublished state uh, on a product, right? And... Uh, when you click the button, you get this little drop down that shows up. And in each section of that drop down is an option. And by default, the title text for that option is like a dark text color. And then there's like a little descriptive helper text underneath it that's like a softer dark text color. Yep. But when you hover on the whole chunk, the whole background changes to blue, which means I want the text to change to white. But I'm not hovering on the text itself necessarily, right? Like I could just be hovering over the corner of that item, not over the actual text item. So I can't put a class on that piece of text that says when I hover on the text to make it white. I have to say when I hover on the parent container, make all text inside of it white, right? So I have to use like nested selectors, like a descendant selector to make that possible. So yep. that's an example for me where I don't think there's any way to do that with utilities. Like I guess I could come up with a utility that says make all children of this white 
but it sounds seems, like a dangerous, like yeah, it sounds, it sounds like a, rough like a road dark to go down. path to go down. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. So in that in that case, it made more sense for me to just create a drop down component, and the drop down component is mostly comprised of my existing utility classes, but it has totally. a couple special behaviors, like the fact that when I hover over this, the child text should become white. No big deal. Like I'm fine with creating a, a component for that. I'm not like dogmatic to like the utility yeah. based yeah. approach. So yeah. so don't feel like you have to like throw everything away or that you only have to write things in this way. I think the other final point that I want to leave people with is that I think this approach is most powerful when you are not trying to subscribe to it as like a dogmatic approach, you know, like kind of playing off of what I was just saying before. Um, this is not like a new way to write CSS that replaces everything that you ever did before. For me, it's actually like replaced most of what I've done in the past. Like I find that, wow, I can actually just use utilities for 90% of stuff and that's fine. And I end up not having to write much new CSS, but I try not to think about it as like something that's designed to replace everything else I know, like a complete paradigm shift. To me, it's just like another tool um, another way of writing CSS, like another way to solve certain problems. It ends up solving most of my problems, <laughs> but yes, I'm, I'm yes. not like throwing out creating components or anything like that in favor of this. My workflow instead has just been start with utilities, design with utilities, extract components when it becomes obvious that this is going to be easier for me to work with and maintain as a component than it is as uh, util a combination of utilities. It turns yeah. out that in practice, um, you don't need to extract components as often as you might think. Like you don't feel that pain as often as you might think, but you should have no qualms about extracting components when necessary. That shouldn't feel like throwing in the towel or anything. Totally. And I think totally. like when you were first working on this stuff, like you had that sort of feeling, like anytime you needed to create a component you were like, man, this is bullshit. I shouldn't be able to do this <laughs> all with the utilities. Like I don't want to have to yeah. uh, create components, but I think it's yeah. important to like try and avoid that mindset and just like think, dude, if you create a component, that's fine. Yeah. You're not, you're not admitting defeat uh, or anything. I think that's like, yeah, that sometimes happens when like, when you learn of a new approach, like sometimes you get like push on that approach a little bit to kind of like feel like how far you should go with it. And I think that's what I was doing during that period of time. Like I was like, okay, this is like a new approach to this problem. I'm going to push against it a little bit to kind of know, and then I'll pull back a little bit. Yeah. And I think it like as a general, like I think as I mature as a programmer, um, is that you sort of realize like there's conventions, like conventions are such a wonderful thing because they can just make things go faster. But I really like that analogy used earlier, this idea of like you, you follow a convention, but you have like a release valve for situations like, okay, like I'm following this convention, this is working out great, but now I have this, you know, this complex little component, this section of this design that I have, you know, this problem, like this, this button, this drop down button toggle thing that you're discussing. Like, don't, don't fight it. Like, and, and feel like you have to be purist to your new utility class approach. It's like, no, just, just use that release valve, jump into a CSS file and just write it the way you would normally write it and save it as a component and move on. Like, it's great. Totally. Awesome, man. So I think the last thing that I want to uh, leave people with is um, a couple CSS utility frameworks to check out if you want to try this approach. So uh, the first one I'll plug is Beard, which is David Hemphill's uh, CSS framework. 
And you know David if you listen to this podcast at all. Uh, and that's at buildwithbeard.com. I'll put links to all these uh, in the show notes. But there's Beard. Uh, another really popular one is Tachyons. Uh, T-A-C-H-Y-O-N-S. And I think that's at tachyons.io. Uh, and that's a really popular one that you know is focused on this approach too. Uh, a more recent one that I saw get released the other day is called Fractures. And that's at fractures.space. Another one I've looked at is called Turret CSS, which is turretcss.com. And then finally, uh, Milligram, which is at milligram.io. So those are uh, some of the utility frameworks that I've looked at that I thought had some interesting ideas in them. Uh, I'm also working on this one that me and Jonathan have been playing with. I have no timeline on when I'll be able to like open source or release that. Uh, but we're tr- really trying to fine tune that and uh, and make that awesome. So uh, look for that. Hopefully uh, uh, sometime this year, hopefully we'll have that out there. But in the meantime, there's definitely a lot of other stuff uh, that you can check out and play with if this is an approach that you're, you're interested in checking out. Uh, is there anything uh, else that you want to close off with, Jonathan? No, man. It's been good. Thanks for having me on again. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, dude. It's always a pleasure. Uh, if anyone's interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 68. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, uh, give us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, thanks to Rollbar and our new sponsor, Codeship, for sponsoring the podcast this week. And I'll see you all next time.